Seahawks fans, wherever you may be, welcome back for another edition of the Hawks Playbook Podcast. Join your host, Bill Alfstead, and co-host, sports writer and football analyst, Keith Myers, as we talk Seahawks football. Seahawks fans, welcome back to another edition of the Seahawks Playbook Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Alfstead, and I'm here each week with Keith Myers. Keith, how you doing? I am doing great. We are here to talk Seahawk football. It's always my favorite part of the week, and uh, this week we have a special guest with us. We're very privileged to have Dan Viennes of the Dan Cave Podcast on the show today. Dan, how you doing? Uh, you guys are too kind. Too kind, too flattering. Um, it's great to join you guys. So Dan uh, covers both the Seahawks and the Mariners on his own uh, podcast, uh, the Dan Cave Podcast, and the former, uh, well, not former, kind of sports journalist. Uh, sometime you write as well and submit to, to different websites. Also a mixologist and a graduate of Wazoo in the uh, School of Broadcasting there. Uh, you actually did... Uh, a television sports director gig for a couple of uh, uh, big affiliate uh, stations. And uh, you had also started writing for the Seahawks through the 12th Man Rising website when Keith was the uh, editor and writer there. Yeah, that's how Keith and I got to know each other. And that was uh, that was a lot of fun. I've, I've written for a few websites and that was my most enjoyable uh, experience so far. And then over the years, I, I think I've just gotten lazy. It's uh, it's just a lot easier to turn on a microphone and and talk about something than it is to think of uh, new and creative ways to write about it. So this podcast thing is right in my wheelhouse. Yeah, it's not only uh, easier, it's just more fun. Like I've yeah. tried to write a few different times and <laughs> I just can't hang with it very often. But when I when I talk, it's like it's just so easy. So there there it is. So you and I also love... Rock and roll. I mean, Keith as well, but you and I kind of have the same lane as far as like the kind of music we've been listening to. We and do seem to, yeah. So the the Alter Bridge thing and uh, Mark Tremonte and and just shredding guitars and stuff. But you have this weird kind of love niche in that space too. The Swedish like eighties style <laughs> hair band thing. What's up with that? So you remarked on that recently because um, I think I retweeted an album review or something uh, from a, one of my favorite bands uh, currently out there. They're from Sweden. They're called Heat. Uh, it's an acronym. It's H.E.A.T. And it, the reason I like them is because it, it takes me back. They're a current band that yeah. that um, writes and records on a regular basis, but they do they do it in a style that if if they had all been born twenty years earlier. Um, in the in the late '80s, early '90s, before grunge wiped out, um, yep. you know, kind of that melodic hard rock thing, and uh, I think they would have been they would have been a heavy hitter yeah. uh, back in those <laughs> days. And so I just one of the great rock vocalists out there, and Eric Gronwald, and and those guys are hard to find nowadays. So um, usually, when you get bands that are currently trying to do that style, it comes off as very very corny and cheesy, and almost comes off like a parody almost a steel panther type of a thing. That's funny. Um, but these guys sound genuine in, in how they're doing it. And that's, that's so what I love about it. After you tweeted about it, I actually I went and checked them out. And there's a whole genre of that sort of rock. And it's like, it's totally yeah. coming back. I love it. The fact that they're still trying to keep that music alive and 
to me, it's some of the best, you know, the best music out there. Just that, that rock from the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know, before grunge, I love old music. Um, but yeah, same, uh, you know me, I mean, I'm, I'm at my heart, I'm a journey fan, which is, you yeah. know, you'd think is, is much different than the, the Def Leppards and the Motley Crues and the Alter Bridges and stuff, uh, with some of the new bands even, but you know, that's my, that's my foundation, I guess you could say. It's funny. I had a chance. Sorry, Keith, we're just leaving you out of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm good. We'll I'm, come back to I'm, I'm, I'm just here just listening in. It's all good. <laughs> so I had this opportunity, um, Dan, to see Journey Through Time. A couple of, uh, well, yeah, I'm jealous. back about a, a year and a quarter ago, I guess it is from, from this point. And uh, I had front row at the Van Buren uh, Theater here in, in uh, Phoenix, which is a non-seated place. It was just, but they had like five rows seated in front. You paid a little extra, you got a seat and you got right in front. And I was sitting right next to Michelle, which is Steve Schoen's wife. And she oh, yeah. was recording the whole show and she kind of stood in front of me a few different times to get close up shots. And we all got some great pictures and it was just a fun event. And then after the show, we were hanging out just for a little while, just standing around chatting. And Michelle came out uh, of the back of the stage, came forward uh, all the way across the stage and, and handed me a T-shirt. And she said, sorry, I stood in front of you, you know, during the show. <laughs> so that was cool. That was really cool. I was awfully jealous you got to see that because that, that was kind of a, a walk through some of their their deep cuts and and uh, sort of their whole catalog yeah. outside. Well, and Steve Raleigh was there just, with them. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen that, and I thought it was going to become a bigger thing and was going to lead to a bigger tour. Uh, I think that was the plan. I don't know if the the response just wasn't there that they wanted as far as ticket sale demand or if if just journey got in the way, but. You know, it's it's funny just talking about music. Um, just one note, real quick. I really, really am enjoying what some, not all, but some of the artists are doing during this time. Um, some of them have just been so great about streaming live shows and doing performances and reaching out that way, um, being more active on social media. It's because it's one of the things I miss the most, and one of the things that if if we could go back, or if we could go ahead in time, I guess, and fast forward to when we can do whatever we want to do again without having to worry about catching this virus. I really miss going to live shows. Oh, I know. And I've got tickets for three separate shows this, this year. I've got a, a foreigner show coming up with Kansas. I've got a Def Leppard show with uh, a couple other bands. That's the Motley Crue Motley tour, Crew tour. Yeah. yeah. And then I've got a Ramstein at the LA Coliseum at the back end of September. And uh, well, look at the look at the bright side when you when you get to see Motley Crue again next summer. Now it just it gives Vince Neil a whole nother year to lose that weight. <laughs> I, I, I would imagine all these things are going to be rescheduled, but that's just the way it goes. All right. We've put everyone through uh, this this nightmare conversation that's lasted uh, way too long now, Dan. So we're going to have to start talking Seahawks football now. OK. So, uh, news and notes this week, Seahawks fans. Um, Seahawks made a claim on Jason uh, Stanley, a corner from Atlanta. He's got kickoff return experience. Uh, he's got the 33-inch arm thing going on. A guy that played wide receiver in college, they gave him a chance to be a corner. Uh, didn't Hasn't quite made it yet. Seahawks are going to take a look uh, and see what's going on there. Um, we also made a couple cuts this week. Justin Britt. 
was released from the Seahawks, as well as DJ Fluker, creating a cap savings uh, for the team of a combined $12.1 million. Wanted to talk to you guys about that for just a minute. Talk about the cap in general. After those cuts, went over to the Over the Cap website. Thank you, gentlemen. And the it shows the Seahawks having about $21.2 million in cap. That is uh, only accounts for the top 51 players on the roster currently, and that's all we really need to know. There's going to be some money allocated there for the draft picks and then uh, injured reserve. So we'll end up having somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 or $15 million. My question to you guys, uh, Keith, go ahead uh, first, is uh, what does that say about what they're trying to accomplish and uh, at least one of those cuts was, was expected. Well, you don't go, I mean, both of those, the, the Brit one, we were basically just waiting, right? It was going to happen. We just didn't know when Um, the only way around it is if they, they approached him about a pay cut and he took it because he was never going to play on a contract that size. And so, and then Fluker is kind of just with him. I mean, they drafted his replacement, um, and while it would have been nice to have Fluker around at least for part of the season as they ease the rookie in, since there's not going to be the normal off season, um, they drafted his replacement. So we kind of both of those were there. What you end up with though is a situation where they can they can um, gain a whole bunch of cap space that they can use to go sign someone, and that that might be. Um, Clowney, although it does sound like that uh, ship has sailed, but it might be uh, Everson Griffin, or it might be that they're going to go trade for uh, Yannick or Judon and sign one of them to a to a lucrative extension instead. Um, and you need that cap space to make those moves. And now they have it. They have the cap space. So if you're going to trade for someone like Yannick, uh, you have to be able to take on the entirety of the uh, franchise tag, because that's 100% guaranteed, all of that, um, before you can, in order to get them onto the roster, and then you can sign them to whatever new deal, which negates the franchise tag and lowers the cap number or whatever, but you have to be able to have the cap space to bring one of those guys onto the roster first, and they now have the ability to do that. So this does suggest a big move coming. I would think so. Dan, what do you think? You know, when it first happened, I thought the timing of it coming right after the draft and the day before um, uh, street free agents weren't going to count against teams that were looking to pick up comp picks. I thought that would spur some movement. And I thought it meant that they had something in, in mind, something big in mind, like we're talking about, like Keith just discussed. I'm not so sure anymore. I, uh, I think the Seahawks feel very strongly about how they do things and, and how they've put this roster together. Um, I think they feel good about the moves they've made up front and the, and the depth uh, that they have now and, and just how many combinations they can use. And I think they're going to spread that money around a little bit. And I'm not so sure they're going to spend it quickly. I could see them waiting another month or two. Um, there's certainly no hurry with with the delays that we're expecting in the offseason program and maybe even the beginning of a training camp. Uh, wait and see what other teams do and other guys that are released um, and 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 kind of pick up some value uh, signings in that way. I don't think they're in any hurry. Yeah, I'm kind of leaning that way myself, although, you know, certainly the timing is interesting and the, the, the amount of money now generated uh, gives them some options to move quickly if they need to. 
jump in front of another team, et cetera. Sure. Uh, but I think you're right. There's no real pressing need. In fact, Clowney mm-hmm. looks like he wants to wait until, you know, be- the day before game day to, to sign a contract. Um, think about it this way. There's been, there's been a lot of talk about potential connection between Everson Griffin, for example, and Pete Carroll. We, we know there were the reports that Grifferson was, uh, Grifferson, I guess, that would be a good nickname. Uh, <laughs> there were there were reports that Griffin was interested in the situation here, that he loved playing for Carroll. It made sense. And that was even before we went out and drafted two more edge players. If if that was the plan, if that was why they were making those cuts on Sunday when they did, don't you think that signing would have happened already? I just I just don't think they have a particular aggressive plan in mind. I think they're waiting to see how the market plays out and then they're going to take advantage of whatever happens. Well, let's, let's go forward and let's, uh, let's take a look at the roster and, and include the new guys. Maybe talk about a couple of undrafted guys that might fit into those plans um, and see where they've really made some improvement. And maybe that'll also shed light on, some of the holes that still remain on the roster. And maybe that'll give us some sure. insight as to what moves they may elect to, to, to do. So let's start right at the top. And Keith and I usually do this because that's what we do when we write these notes out. We kind of start uh, with the quarterback position, go through the offense, and we'll get to the defense and so forth. So uh, Russell Wilson's at the top. He's not going anywhere. He never really – he hasn't taken a, a playoff that wasn't intentional uh, in his eight-year career – um, and they've got Anthony Gordon sitting behind him right now as an undrafted free agent, probably one of the premier undrafted guys that were out there. Uh, they were able to get him into the program. Uh, let's talk about Anthony Gordon just for a second and what he would provide to the roster. And is it really a number two role that he's looking at this year, or do they bring him in to use as part of that new CBA thing where they can have an extra couple guys on the practice squad and also protect those guys uh, from getting picked off? Would he assume maybe a developmental role in a, in that quarterback position? And would they look uh, at more of a veteran guy to come in to be that number two? Geno Smith is still there. BJ Daniels uh, has recently gone through a camp with, with the Seattle XFL team. So he's kind of, you know, ready to play if need be. And Andy Dalton was just cut. Thoughts on Andy Dalton? Either one of you guys, Keith, go ahead. Keith, you want to go first on this one? Um, you know, I I like uh, Anthony Gordon. Um, I, I, I was really surprised that he didn't get uh, drafted. He is a guy that um, goes through progressions like uh, you'd expect an NFL quarterback to do that most college quarterbacks don't. Um, And, you know, quick release, decent arm, not a, not a, not a big arm, but uh, good enough. He's above threshold. Uh, You know, his problem is his footwork, his pocket movement. Um, He likes to throw off, um, off platform when he doesn't need to. And these are all like fundamental things that when you have a really good quarterback coach like, uh, Schottenheimer, th- that's the type of thing you can clean up. And, you know, Shotty's like really good about working with uh, quarterbacks oh, and doing those kind of things. Yeah. So I think that, you know, you're, you're looking at getting a guy in who might be significantly better than people think. He also doesn't necessarily fit Seattle's system. Well, he doesn't deal with pressure um, as well as you need to behind Seattle's makeshift offensive line and that kind of thing, which is why I was surprised he came to Seattle and didn't end up in a, in a 
a situation like Atlanta or, you know, one of the teams that have a more traditional pocket passer quarterback in front of him. Um, I don't know what the Seahawks are planning to do there, but he, you know, there's a lot to like in him as a quarterback. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, they went with BJ Daniels as the, um, the backup. And, and when he was still, um, you know, completely unproven and, you know, uh, all of that. And, and they went ahead and went with it and they, they took that risk without the veteran and, and, uh, did okay there. And, and so maybe this is the year they start that. I, don't foresee it. I, I expect them to go go resign Geno Smith or someone like that to be the backup. I do too, Dan. Yeah, I I one hundred percent think that this signing is about developing a guy, and I do think they'll take advantage of the the slight expansion in the roster, um, and hopefully roster this guy all year and let Schottenheimer work with them. I I felt like they pulled the plug way too quick on Alex Magoo. I thought there was some upside there, uh, but they've never really taken a developmental quarterback uh, seriously during the, the Carol and Schneider time, despite all of Schneider's talk about what he learned from Ron Wolf and, and would like to take a quarterback every year in the draft, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they usually sign guys like who was it last year that Taron Taron Christian was that his name, the kid out of South Dakota state who was on the roster for about three weeks. And, and they've always just kind of paid lip service to it. I think you take a guy like Gordon who had to have multiple teams interested in him to convince him to sign with you uh, over other teams that may have had a clearer path to playing time or to being the primary backup um, tells me that they, that they, they pitched him on the idea of working with Schottenheimer and developing. I fully expect him to sign a veteran. And I think it's interesting. You mentioned Daniels. It made me think of the XFL and I think a guy that's not getting talked about enough and I'm surprised he hasn't signed anywhere yet actually, because the Seahawks had him, on their roster for a couple of weeks, but, but Cardale Jones, I thought, uh, showed some really good things too in his time with the, what was it? The Washington something or others. I've already forgotten the names of the, <laughs> of the XFL teams. Uh, but there's other options out there. And you know, the easy one would be Geno Smith coming back. I know there was a lot of talk today about Andy Dalton because he was officially released by the Bengals. And, and we all know that Schneider loved him the year before they took Russell. And that was almost the pick in the first round, but uh, I think there's a role out there for him uh, with an opportunity to start. Yeah, Dan, uh, Keith and I have talked about it almost every year during this time about a developmental quarterback and the lack thereof and so forth. And we've talked about it again in this uh, draft of, of picking somebody or getting a priority free agent to bring in. And sure enough, they did. And so I would love to be able to see them. It'd be telling to me to look at the contract that Anthony Gordon signed and if there's how much bonus money there is there. Um, cause that should tell us, uh, what the expectation level is of him sticking around and how much they're willing to invest in, uh, in developing him. And I would assume they'll take advantage of that, protection on the practice squad and he would be there. He would have an opportunity to develop for a year and then next year come in and really compete for that number two spot. I sure hope so. Cause I, I think he has tremendous upside and, and worst case scenario, you spend a couple of years to, well, I guess worst case scenario is he just flames out of the league, but you know, look what some of these other teams do and, and drafting guys and trading them and turning, turning them into, and turning them into assets. And, and there's no downside to that at all. Dan, what is your position on the running back group this year with Chris Carson coming off the hip? 
You got Rashad Penny, who actually had a, a video come out this morning about him doing some I saw that. Ste- a little step-up workout, uh, yeah. showing that quick feet and that knee, taking the bounce. That was actually pr- somewhat encouraging, although I don't like his method where he had some untied shoelaces there, and that and that platform <laughs> he was stepping up on, and down on was moving back and forth. I was like, oh my goodness, dude, come on. Um, and then uh, Travis Homer's there. Uh, Adam Choice has been there as well as a kind of a practice squad kind of guy and then dj dallas round four pick for the seattle seahawks this year um a guy that shows some scheme diversity as far as being able to run between the tackles but can also go outside um gives you a little bit of uh, pass catching ability out of the backfield also has some return experience as well seahawks are looking at that um as part of uh having a guy be able to come in and make an impact make the roster and be a special teams contributor so overall, what are your thoughts on that group? And is it likely they still look at maybe bringing a vet guy in? I think they do for a couple of reasons. One is there's a bunch of guys on the street right now, guys that are pretty appealing, guys that would really fit um, and be affordable, um, have some tread left on the tires. But also I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty in that group. You know, there really isn't uh, a no-brainer guy that you can count on. We all love Chris Carson, but the fact of the matter is he's never played um, all 16 regular season games without health issues. That was an issue at Oklahoma State even. he was It was one of the knocks on him is he had never played a full healthy season. It was encouraging to see the video from from Penny, although you know certainly a long way to go before we're talking about lateral cuts and things of that nature. You don't know how long his recovery is going to take. Um, I do like... Dallas uh, more than I thought I would. Um, and, and I might like him more than Homer because I think he's a more physical runner. I think he can be more effective inside the tackles. Um, it's interesting that those two guys, once Penny's healthy, are probably battling for a roster spot and they're good friends and former teammates and all that. But I do think it it, it makes sense to sign another veteran. I'm, I'm trying to think back off the top of my head to to last year and really past years. They usually have seven or eight of those guys on the 90 man roster when they go to camp, don't they? Yeah, they do. I mean, last year there was, there was a pile um, of guys that they had. And then of course it whittled down to the four that they kept, um, you know, and process is gone now, but what you end up with in a situation like that is you, you at training camp, when they go through and they do all of the, uh, drills and everything, you just need bodies at some point. And if somebody yeah. is, you know, rolls an ankle and has to take a day off or whatever, you, you got to have other people there to pick up that load or you can't get the offensive line, the work that they need and the quarterback, the work that he needs because you're, you're short people at the running back position and they just don't have enough bodies right now. So they're going to bring Mm -hmm. someone else in. We know that we just don't know who, and we don't know what, uh, whether they're going to bring in someone who, they believe, you know, like a veteran that can get that can contribute, or that they go get an undrafted uh, guy to come in and see. Well, let's see what he's got, uh, with the expectation that maybe he'll make the practice squad, um, or maybe you know, or they'll find a diamond in the rough type of guy. So, um, yeah. you know, we don't we don't know where their expectation is, but we do know that there will be an additional player. Well, I I do know that they had an undrafted free agent sign in Anthony Jones. Uh, he was the guy uh, that you may have heard about with the gunshot wound uh, mm-hmm. that went through his back up through the, below his eye. He's fully recovered from that. Uh, 5'11", 215 pounds, so it kind of meets that height, weight 
criteria that the Seahawks have uh, 100 or excuse me 867 yards in 2019 he's the half brother of uh, Dalvin Cook so he's got that initial uh, burst and wiggle but he's a little bit slower in the long speed at 46740 they'd like to have their guys in the uh, 455 range um, as as kind of a minimum so it'll be interesting to see what they expect out of him. Uh, I do agree, though, uh, as far as a vet guy, that it doesn't hurt to have a vet guy come in, especially at a veteran minimum contract. Carlos Hyde's out there, Lamar Miller, Doug Martin, uh, Frank Gore is even out there at, like, what, 60 years old or whatever, Um, but still somewhat effective last year. Marshawn Lynch, obviously. Marshawn Lynch. (laughs) Exactly. So, Mark, you wouldn't expect any news on Marshawn until, like, the last play of the last preseason game, if there's preseason or right before the season starts, they would bring a guy like that in. Um, obviously, uh, would be a, a real nice, uh, addition to the team, but isn't really giving you much, uh, but could stand in for Penny, uh, through, you know, seven or eight weeks until Penny was able to be completely back. If he started out the season on the unable to perform list. So, but overall, uh, you guys think that we're basically good at, at running back, even if we don't make an addition or we make one addition that's pretty well set. Chris Carson looks like he's going to be 100% healthy, ready for camp, ready for season, going in with, with that. You guys comfortable there? I think Dan? so. I think as long as as long as we know that Carson's healthy and all indications are that, that he is, then, and, and let's assume that, that Penny starts the season on the pup list and isn't available till week seven or whenever they choose to bring him back. I still think they're in decent shape. Um, I think Dallas uh, shows enough on tape. And I think Homer showed us enough last year when he got to play at the end of the season was pressed into service that, uh, that there's enough to like there. The question is how do they view the fullback position and, and is it worth carrying a guy like Nick Ballore anymore, who I think at this point is a waste of a roster spot. Um, because I do think that would give you the opportunity just for insurance to have another veteran on the roster. Wide receiver. Uh, I was surprised that the Seahawks didn't come out with a, with a higher pick at wide receiver uh, to take advantage of some of that really top end talent uh, in the draft say the, through the first four rounds, but I'm not completely surprised. They did address the pass catching uh, position, if you will. Mm-hmm. Overall, though, in the offseason, if you take a look at the addition of Philip Dorsett, uh, if you take a look at the um, if the, uh, the the players currently on the roster and uh, a guy like Penny Hart, John Ursu is sitting there. They picked up a guy at the back end of the draft and uh, Stephen yeah. uh, Sullivan. You've obviously got Lockett and Metcalf at the top. David Moore is still there. Um, they also brought in on the, in the tight end group uh, Olson. And then Parkinson in the draft. There's a lot of tools for uh, Russell Wilson to work with. Uh, the passing game already was was pretty decent. And if you if you take a look at uh, some of the guys we lost and some of the guys we brought in, I think overall we're in a better position to be successful. What do you guys think, Keith? Well, I mean, I also was when you have a wide receiver class in a draft that's as good and as deep as the one it was this year. You kind of hope to get one of those players and uh, just come into it with with another guy, but they they never felt like they needed to because they had uh, they're returning you know their top three guys from last year. You add Dorsett to the mix, and uh, you know you've got other guys in there. They're, now you've got people competing for that sixth wide receiver spot, right? So it's it's 
I think they were fine in the way that they managed to do it. As long as, you know, you've got Lockett and Metcalf at the top of your uh, roster, you've got two, one of the best wide receiver tandems that you're going to see around the league. And they're set. So I think they're in pretty good shape. I also forgot to mention Freddie Swain in that too, sixth round Mm -hmm. overall. Also has some Mm -hmm. uh, punt returning upside um, that Schneider alluded to as well. Dan, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I don't think they went into the draft expecting or planning to pass on that position uh, through five rounds. I think that's just the way it fell. If you can imagine, you know, if we knew then what we know now and we know that they thought they had a deal uh, to move back to Green Bay's pick at 30, which would have gained them another late third round pick. That's how Miami was able to um, outbid us is is they offered uh, the Packers a chance to move up and and um, it would only cost them a fourth. Um, you know, if you think about think about it in those terms, Seahawks moved back to 30. Now they have two seconds, two thirds and two fourths. There's probably a receiver taken in that group. And it's probably a guy that we were more familiar with and and maybe even higher on. Um, but I th- I think they're OK. I think what they did is they they took some really unique guys and guys that can affect the passing game in different in different ways. I just this morning listened to an interview David Shaw did on uh, local radio here. Uh, and he sees, he obviously, as you can imagine, he raved about Colby Parkinson. He sees him as a full-time slot guy. Someone can play inside full-time. And, and imagine what a weapon that could be uh, for Russell Wilson in the middle of the field. And and I'm telling you, too, the, the more I look at Stefan Sullivan, I like that they're going to give him the opportunity to play outside first with the idea that they could always they could always try to bulk him up later mm-hmm. on and, and play him more at tight end like LSU did. But I think he can be that big outside wide receiver that Carroll's been looking for since the day he arrived in Seattle and has never really found that Mike Williams type. Um, I think there's a lot to work with there. And you didn't even mention Malik Turner. We all hate the drop that he had in the playoff game against Green Bay, but he made some real strides last year too. And and I might like his upside even a little bit more than David Moore. So I, well, they I think let, there's plenty they let for them to Turner work with there. off the roster uh, before the draft, Dan. Oh, I totally missed that. Yeah, they. Uh, he was he was an exclusive right free agent. They they tendered him a contract they, that he hadn't okay. signed, and they and they withdrew that offer, so making him a free agent. Amidst all of the uh, the moves, I missed that. But but I will tell you this: as much as up until this point, I have really really been intrigued with what John Ursua can offer. Um, I think Freddie Swain's got a heck of a chance to beat him out for a roster spot. I think he's I do a little, too. little more, little more sudden, a little more explosive there as a slot guy. Well, that's exactly right. And, and Ursula is going to be 26 years old this year, which is, yeah. which is interesting for, you know, a second year guy. Um, yeah. yeah, no, I agree that the point you made about uh, having a diverse skill set uh, come, come to the, the, the table, you got Lockett, Medcalf. Uh, there's your big Mike Williams guy, by the way. Um, right. Uh, Stephen Sullivan, Much faster than Mike. Williams. Well, true, true. <laughs> but you're talking, you're talking a possession, big guy, possession he wide receiver, a lot better. right? Um, David Moore's tried to be that, but I, you know, I'm not sure if I see a roster spot even at this point for David Moore. It'd be interesting to see right. uh, the development of Sullivan um, over the course of the offseason. It's very difficult right now, considering the circumstances to see how some of these back end of the roster kind of guys break through, but anything can happen. You just, you just don't know. So tight ends, um, Dan, what Hmm. are your thoughts overall on the tight end group? 
um, including the, the the new guy we got, who I just I'm falling in love with, Parkinson out of Stanford. Yeah, me too. Um, it I think you can say exactly the same things about that group that we just said about the receiver group. You've got a real diverse set of skill sets. You know, you we saw what Jacob Hollister could do last year as a, as a real move tight end, almost a, a kind of a de facto wide receiver, and how much he gained Wilson's trust. As the season went along, how much um, uh, stock do you put into the scuttlebutt out there about him not making the roster or whatever? I know he's got the big tender. Uh, he's he's obviously extremely productive last year. Um, I just don't see it myself. I see him being on the on the roster for sure. But I'm curious as to what you think with that. Well, if you recall when you were on my podcast a few weeks ago, I I mentioned that I. I saw the possibility of him not making the roster because of that. I that, agree. I, I remember that, that dollar value. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, you know, I think it's almost as if them drafting Parkinson makes me lean more towards he's going to be on the roster. Cause I think they have a plan and how they're going to use the tight end position. And I think they're going to carry four. I think Luke Wilson's probably the guy on the outside looking in, Yeah, but it, it you know, if, and when will Disley's hundred percent healthy, he's your guy that can really be an inline blocker. Uh, as good as anyone in the draft the year he came out. Greg Olson is can do both. Um, and then you have Hollister and Parkinson that can help in, in different ways in the receiving group. And so I see them carrying four, and I, I see all of them contributing in some way. So do you see them carrying four there and five wide receivers or one less running back or that fullback is eliminated? How do you see that kind of playing out? It all depends on how they choose to use those two extra spots. You know, and I, I think, um, you know, they've, I think if Swain makes the roster, uh, it could be as an additional guy because he can do so much on special teams too. And so I could see him if, if um, gosh, if Penny was 100% healthy, we could be talking about them only carrying, uh, I agree. carrying one, one less running back even, you know, because they don't use all the guys they have on the roster anyway. So um, it's going to be one of the storylines in camp is how they, how they manipulate that offensive, uh, that depth chart. Keith, is uh, Luke Wilson gone out of this scenario? Uh, I believe so. I, I look at it and it's just the way that the draft fell and the way that they, the wide receiver and running back groups, uh, look right now. Luke Wilson is hoping for, uh, his versatility and basically the, the team making the commitment that Nick Ballore is going to be gone and Luke Wilson's going to be the fullback H back because he can inline block and he can be the fullback and he can do all those little things. He's kind of hoping for that. He's also hoping for uh, maybe that Dis- Disley's not 100% ready to go, and so maybe he yeah. starts on the pup list, and um, or that Penny's not ready to go, and he starts on the pup list, and, and therefore creating roster spots that way. So he's dependent he, he solely a, right now on somebody getting injured, basically, is what you're saying. Kind of, yeah. I mean, he, he has a path to the roster. Uh a fairly decent path because he's talking about, we're talking about guys who are already injured and not necessarily expected to be a hundred percent. And so there it's there, but he is an injury hedge at this point. He isn't a guy that we can just expect. He's going to make the roster on his own and be a contributor. Well, Disley did tear that Achilles. I mean, this isn't just Mm -hmm. an easy injury to recover from now. All signs 
and you know Pete, he glows about everything. All signs to right. point towards Disley being ready for camp, and which would be an amazing thing and a testament to his work ethic yet again. I mean, coming back from the ACL, now the Achilles, if he were to be ready to go and be somewhat close to 100% or even 90%, 90% of Disley, I'll take. I don't want him to get re-injured, though, because of that. Especially this year, you don't want a guy to be rushed back. You just don't know what is going on in the offseason and how these guys take care yeah. of themselves. But to have that tight end room be completely 100% um, with Olsen, Hollister, Disley, and now Parkinson, plus you add that wide receiver group, and then you add the re uh, receiving capabilities of uh, like a, a DJ Dallas out of the backfield and Homer already. My goodness. I mean, yeah. Russell Wilson wanted some weapons. I think he wanted maybe a proven guy, but holy smokes. I mean, there's a lot of guys there to make plays. I, I think it's easy to say, uh, and it's not a stretch by any means, that that since Carol and Schneider arrived, um, it's it's – it's the best collection of skill position players the Seahawks have had, just top to bottom. Yeah. So offensive line. So Keith, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you because this is your favorite, and um, yeah. why not? So Pete Carroll comes out in January, and says, "Yeah, exit interviews. We want everybody back. Continuity is our number one <laughs> focus, right?" So after this week, after the cuts that we trimmed the roster down, we are now looking at least at a minimum of three of the five offensive linemen being new starters and possibly mm -hmm. a fourth. If um, Haynes can beat out a potty at left guard, we could be going with Brown, Haynes, Finney, uh, the, the guy we picked up in the draft. Sorry, I lost his Lewis, Lewis and, yeah. and shell at right tackle starting the season. Man, that's a lot of change to absorb in a team that's kind of in a Super Bowl window right now and in win now mode. Um, and you're looking at a, almost an entire revamp of a of a offensive line unit that wasn't necessarily poor last year, but wasn't the, wasn't the best. Um, and now oh, it's it going to be is it a, is it a position of strength <laughs> this year or is it like uh, what's going on there? I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you and say you when you said it wasn't poor it I was said poor. not necessarily not completely poor I mean it, look at go look at Pro Football Focus and look at you know uh pass rush uh success rate you know and and run blocking rates win rates and so forth we weren't at the bottom of the league in in those categories No but we were we were down there and we were down there despite the fact that we played a sixth offensive lineman a lot and uh, did a lot of max protect kind of situations in order to try and keep Russell Wilson from, you know, getting murdered. Um, but the offensive line was a major problem and a major liability. And, you know, the center position was a problem. I mean, Justin Britt was, was significantly better than Joey Hunt, but um, he wasn't, it's not like he was a Pro Bowl candidate, um, and I agree you know, with that. Fluker and Fluker and Lupati were. I mean, Fluker was serviceable. Lupati was at times, but neither of them was great. And uh, we know that Effetti was one of the worst right tackles in the entire league. So uh, we're looking at a group of guys that aren't. Uh, they aren't irreplaceable, and Finney is a significantly better player than. Uh, Brit, and so that's an actually upgrade. And then, you know, we know that 
anything what would at this point would have been better than a Fetty last year. Uh, I'm yeah. not a huge, like I'm, I'm not going to sit here and say that Shell's going to be this massive upgrade, but at least he's not going to have, uh, he's not going to average, you know, two penalties a game the way um, the Fetty did at times. So it, you're going to have a situation where I think continuity for continuity's sake isn't helpful if you were bad to begin with. So now you're, now you're continuously bad. Ooh, great. Um, and I think that they needed to make changes. I did not expect them to make this many changes. I expected two new starters, um, you know, being like a right tackle and center and then just kind of holding everyone else together uh, and then doing making the rest of the changes next year. But you know what? When you were you've got a bunch of guys that are replaceable and they went ahead and replaced them. So when you take a look at the depth on uh, at guard position, you got to feel pretty good. I mean, we've got a lot of guards on the roster. Comp- competition is going to definitely come at that uh, spot. Uh, definitely not worried about guard depth or or center depth at this point. But when you take a look at the offensive tackle room, um, you've you've got a little bit of concern. At least I do. Dwayne Brown, thirty five years old. Uh, his contract, you know, while okay this year, I think next year you might look at that as being something the Seahawks might take advantage of as far as the cap savings is concerned. You've got Brandon Shell on the right side, and then behind that, you've got Cedric Abuahe. Uh, you've got Jamarco Jones, who can play inside and outside, but he's more of a left tackle guy as far as his weight, size, feet are concerned. Um, and then Chad Wheeler, who's kind of a practice squad guy. Um, that's not, there's not a lot of depth there as far as proven quality depth. Dan, if you had to make the roster, it would, would this be the way that you would do it? Or would you still be looking possibly to bring somebody in, in that area? I was really hoping that they were going to draft a tackle. I, I think I that would have really, yeah. yeah, I think that would have added a lot to it, especially a guy, even in the later rounds, like I was a big fan of Charlie Heck, you know, a guy like that that could play either side and just be solid for you. I, I, to me, it's all going to come down to, I want to see from day one of training camp, what they do with Jamarco Jones, because I know you say he's more of a left side guy and Pete's said that, and that that was their plan for him when they drafted him. That's what he played primarily at Ohio state, but we were all really excited about him uh, and the potential for him pushing and, and maybe even unseating Jermaine Effetti when he was put on the hot seat and called to the carpet in that preseason before Jones got hurt and what that's he true. could do. It no, right. That's very true. It, it, yeah, and, and as a guy that can play both sides, probably better than what we've seen from Ugbui, um, who's who's right now the swing tackle. And so I would like, because there are so many guards, um, I would prefer if they just let Jones focus on playing tackle and camp and didn't try to kind of work him around to all those spots and let him compete at all those spots. Um, because I I just think that we need that one more guy. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, Jones uh, Jones got a start last year at left tackle, and it didn't go well. And the no. ne- very next the very next game, they ran, went with uh, George Fant at left tackle, and it went better, um, which I think is was kind of telling. Uh, and at that point, in my head, I was like, okay, let's leave him at guard, because when he was at left guard, he was good. I mean, he was just straight up good. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I was very comfortable with... Uh, with Jones at guard. But now you look at this, um, the roster, the way it's constructed and you, you've got a lot of guards 
and you don't have a lot of tackles. And he's like the one guy that you can move back out there and be that swing tackle. And maybe he, this is the year that he gets to be, um, you know, play that George Fant role and, you know, be that, that sixth offensive lineman and the guy that moves um, from both sides and, and all of that. But I, that's also not using his talents in the best way you can, because his talents are that he was a very good guard. I mean, he lined up against Aaron Donald and and hey, uh, held and held his own. And there are very few guards in the NFL that can hold their own against uh, Aaron Donald. Why would you not leave him there and let him do what he does well? Yeah, that's very interesting. You know, I I'm torn because you got a guy like Dwayne Brown who was injured last year and. While I expect him to come back 100%, you know, he's getting to the point now where injury is going to impact the rest of his career to some level and extent. You just don't recover as fast as you used to when you were a little younger. And we don't really have an optimal left tackle replacement on the roster right now. Jamarco mm-hmm. Jones showed that he doesn't do well outside with outside speed rushers um, on that left side. And that would be a major concern for me going into the season with the roster currently as constructed. So... Um, anyway, we'll see what happens there. Defense. Let's go to defense. Um, I'm really excited this year about the defense. I thought that it was definitely an area that the the Seahawks would focus on, uh, for improvement this year. Um, they did focus on the improvement this year, uh, at that spot. Um, but did they do enough? Um, especially on the on the front line the 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 front seven obviously the the front four is is the key uh we are still completely unsettled as far as the clowny spot is concerned uh but the team was less than stellar even with clowny on the team um and so i'm curious as to see dan what you think overall about the moves that we have made we added uh mayoa we added Irvin back on the roster. We've still got Rasheem Green, who seems to be emerging and uh, developing. Collier hasn't really shown anything yet. Brandon Jackson seems to be a placeholder at this point, but we did yeah. add some key components in the draft. Let's talk about the defensive uh, side of the ball and specifically on the front line there and defensive tackle as well. Did we do enough at defensive tackle? Do you expect additional moves? Yeah, we didn't do anything at defensive tackle. And that was my biggest surprise of the draft is is I don't think I did a single mock draft in the last three months where I didn't have them taking a tackle and fairly high. You know, a lot of times I would lead with that because that's kind of where the value was. Um, clearly, they felt that need for a Leo, you know, a true Leo and how much they liked Taylor and really targeted him in this draft trumped that because that's the range where a lot of those good tackles, the Blacklocks and Mad Bouquets and some of those guys went off the board. Um, but there were even guys later like Elliot and Lynch that they could have taken a shot at. I, I think that's where some of that free agent money is going to be allocated. I think they have a plan there. And that's one area where I trust their judgments when it comes to free agents that every year, it seems like they add a guy um, that comes in and plays a really key role there. Last year it was Al Woods and, and, and the list is pretty long of guys that preceded him. Um, so while I would have liked to have seen them take a tackle there, um, you know, and they, they may feel better about Brian Monet and Demarcus Christmas and Naz Jones than any of us do, or, or that we know that they do. So there's, there's still a weakness there. I th- still think they need to add there, but I absolutely love everything else they did. It, it didn't come along at the rate we wanted it to this off season. It didn't happen on our schedule or our, our timeline, and it didn't involve some of the names that we wanted. Um, 
but you certainly cannot accuse them this year of not doing enough because if you roll the clock back 365 days and you look at where they were at that position after the draft last year and where they are now, it's 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 night and day. We hadn't even signed Ansa by then. In fact, you had Carroll in a very defensive tone at the end of the draft last year in his post-draft press conference saying, hey, relax, we're, we've, we're working on some things. Um, he doesn't have to do that this year. The question is, are you going to add another? Um, uh, so I, I absolutely love what they've got. Interesting. Keith. Well, I say they've added four edge rushers, uh, four pass rushers between um, Mayoa, Irvin, and the two guys they drafted. Um, and they've talked about, well, okay, so how do you get those guys in the field? And and part of it is that, um, you know, you take your your five tech guys, your Rasheem Green and, and Collier, and you move them into the three tech spot on, you know, when it's an obvious passing situation and let them rush from the inside so you can get more of those edge rusher guys on the field. And that's not a bad situation to be in. Um, and uh, so I kind of actually like that group. I do think defensive tackle, they need another body. They need someone mm-hmm. to replace Al Woods on the roster because we saw what happened last year when Woods got suspended at the end of the year. Yeah. They were without, I mean, they brought uh, Monet up from the practice squad and he's, you know, a, a ginormous human at 365 pounds. But um, that's great you know, to play nose tackle and try and stop the run. But when you're trying to have someone rush the passer, there's just not a lot of upside there. And they need someone who can create an interior pass rush. So with the Quentin Jefferson uh, leaving in free agency, you're thinking Rasheem Green and Collier would take some of those snaps, or do they go out and find a guy like that that's that's specifically a three-tech kind of guy that penetrates and and disrupts that uh, pocket? To me, it comes down to what they, you know – what's available and what's out there and how they want to, how they want to spend the money. If they end up getting a guy like um, Everson Griffin or Clowney comes back or they make a trade for Yannick or that kind of stuff, then I, then no, I mean that what they'll, they'll, they'll make up the defensive tackle deficit with uh, Rasheem Green and Collier and, and, and that group uh, of five tech uh, players. If they don't, and they, they look at that market and say it's too rich for them, you know, there are defensive tackles that are, going to be available that are going to come in that are going to be Al Woods like where they're just kind of, you know, near back into their career were once more dominant, but now they're steady and, um, and cheap and they'll, they'll go that route. So it kind of just depends on what other teams do and, you know, who gets, who is the salary cap casualty here in the next couple of weeks and, and that kind of stuff. And and we'll see who is available. Yeah. Dan, what happened to uh, Naz Jones? I don't know. I know they they talked about uh, changing his position last year, having him focus on the outside and being a five tech. Um, with this roster, though, as we just talked about being currently constructed, I would I would wonder if they would um, bring him back and have him focus more on the interior. We saw flashes his rookie year. I remember the game at Carolina. I think oh, that year, especially where he was a dis- real disruptive presence. Um, guy was real strong at the point of attack. Um, and then who knows what happened his second year, you know, some guys hit a wall or they just, they just need to learn how to be pros, but you know, he could be a real under the radar guy, um, that plays a role in this. And that could be part of their thinking and why they didn't draft somebody. Um, I, I also want to say one more thing too, about the outside guys. I, what they did by double dipping on edge in this draft and then adding those other guys on one year deals that they did. I really like what this is going to do or how this is going to impact LJ Collier. I think 
he was always going to be a victim of perception because he was a guy that was taken in the first round. Even and and there were other names everybody wanted. They wanted Montez Sweat and Rashawn Gary and Jerry Tillery. And I think the Seahawks wanted some of those guys too, and they just didn't fall to him in the draft. So they settled for Collier. He was never going to be that twitched up, dynamic, 12 to 14 sack guy that you expect when you're spending a first round draft pick on an edge player. But as a five technique where he can really use the things that that he has working for him and his strength. At the point of attack, um, I think he can become a really effective player there. And now maybe some of those expectations aren't aren't as heavy on his shoulders. I totally agree with the five technique position for him and setting the edge as, as that edge defender, um, similar to the Clowney role last year. Basically, you know, he's not yeah. going to be as dynamic as as Clowney and jump all over the field and make plays up and down the line <laughs> of scrimmage, but he can be effective there, setting the edge and more of that Red Bryant kind of. Uh, role where he he sets that corner of that edge uh, his focuses on run defense which i believe that he can be very good at and you know give us a bull rush once in a while um that would be that let would me be ask awesome. you guys this because when we talk about potential free agents at on the defensive line to me there's one guy out there that as far as his style of play and his ability would absolutely fit better than anybody currently available on the market uh, as a guy that can play the five tack and reduce down and, and be an interior rusher as well. And that's Michael Bennett. My question is, and even said on a, on a, in a radio interview with his wife a couple of months ago, he would love to end his career in Seattle. Is that bridge completely burned by how he acted at the end of his time here in Seattle and some of the things he said afterwards about his time in Seattle? Or do you think that that's a reconciliation that's, that's plausible? I'll go first. I think that, go for I it. think that, uh, Seattle has burned very few bridges during Pete Carroll's time in Seattle. Now, I I can almost guarantee you that that bridge isn't burned with Pete Carroll. Now, John Schneider may be frustrated overall mm -hmm. um, as, as kind of a front office guy um, and, and that perception. But I don't think Pete has any problem with handling those guys in the locker room, on the field. He likes Michael Bennett. I'm absolutely positive as a player, as a person. Um the question is, does he still fit? And does he have anything left? Is he going to be worth the probably two and a half sure million dollars? Like in Dallas he last would, year. Does, is he worth the two and a half million we'd probably have to spend to, to, yeah. to pay him to come and, and be on the team? And do we need him? Do, it, would, would his arrival take snaps and developmental snaps away from a guy like Collier? Or a guy like Rasheem Green, um, yeah. and and do you do you go ahead and do that to your roster? Um, I'm just not sure. I don't know. I mean, would I welcome him back? Absolutely. I love him as a player, as a he personality. Act differently. Well, and, and you're probably not going to get that at this point. I mean, he's yeah. he's baked in as a personality and as a as a player, and you know he's at the point of his career where you know he's looking for a respect and all that kind of stuff. So I'm just not sure yeah. if it's a good. Uh, locker room fit at this point with all the young guys on the roster. Keith? Well, I was going to say a lot of the same things is that uh, if you look at the way Marshawn Lynch left um, mm -hmm. and the way that all, all that worked out with him, like basically not getting on the plane uh, for that playoff game yeah. and uh, all of that. And then he came back last year and it, not only did he come back, he was welcomed back. He was excited to be back. It was, yeah, he was a, great. And, he, and his response was, I only want to play one place and that's Seattle. 
I'm not playing anywhere else. And even in this off season, uh, Michael Robinson, um, who's one of his best friends was like, if he's going to play, it's going to be in Seattle and nowhere else. And, and just after the way that it ended and then the way that it, it, after, you know, given some time, how it came back, um, I, I agree with you. There are, there are no burnt bridges when it comes to Pete Carroll. If Michael Bennett is willing to, um, you know, basically get back on board and recommit and rebuy into the Pete Carroll message, Michael Bennett um, will be eligible to come back. I just don't know w- if they want to. Um, and not just, not from a personal standpoint, from a player standpoint. Yeah. You look at like the Seahawks gave up on, on Bennett for a fifth round pick. The um, Eagles gave up on Bennett for a fifth round pick. The The Patriots benched him and then ultimately gave up on him for, I don't even remember what, but it was less than a fifth round pick. Um, and then the Cowboys came out as soon as the season was in and it was like, yep, I think we're, um, we're going to try and get younger. And, and basically they made it very clear that they weren't interested in, in resigning him. I mean, that's four teams, including three very successful teams. And then Dallas, which does its own thing, um, that have all said that have all said, uh, that he just wasn't, he just didn't have that value. There's four teams there in three years that gave up on him for, for, for nothing. And I, that, that's so telling. It's so telling to me. And he was so good. He was such a great player. Um, that it, I just don't think he has much left in the tank, and I think they, the the other NFL teams are trying to tell us that. Fair enough. So here we are in a position group that I I didn't really feel like Seattle was going to address in the in the draft at all. In fact, we didn't really address it in free agency. Uh, you know, when you take a look at the starting roster uh, at the in the linebacker room, we got Bobby Wagner, Hall of Famer, in the middle. KJ Wright actually had a bounce back year last year, better than he was the previous two years. He was kind of going through that injury thing with his knee and so forth. Came back last year, played in all all the games. Um, Cody Barton is a rookie last year. Uh, Seahawks went up and got in the third round. They like him. He's kind of a man in between positions, though, at, at this point. Um, Shaquem Griffin is sitting there. Um, ben Burkirvan, uh, more of a special teams guy. He's got a little undersized to kind of play in the NFL every down. Uh, but then they went out and made, you know, shocked the world, essentially, with their first-round pick this year. If we were really paying attention and diving a little deeper in our evaluations and so forth, and I'm really curious as to how, Dan, you kind of evaluated the process even before. I mean, you were the master of mock drafts. Um, and, and thereby did <laughs> never took Jordan Brooks. Though. Not <laughs> well, one time. Well, I'll tell you what though, you were a master at, <laughs> at evaluating the draft and value pockets and all that kind of stuff. And, the, and, and you probably did an evaluation just on mock drafts of like 150, 200 players. It was crazy. Um, my question to you is, did you see this coming? Is it now after the draft? I know how you felt at the time of the draft. Mm-hmm. Um, after you've had a, t- a little bit of time to digest this move, um, is it something that makes sense for the Seahawks on a number of different levels, or do you still kind of question like what what are they thinking? Uh, what what happened? Where did they go wrong? Which which one is it? As I got closer to the draft, uh, I'd say within um, the two weeks leading up to it, I started entertaining the idea that that um, outside linebacker in particular was something that they might target in the draft. K.J. Wright's not getting any younger. 
had a really effective season last year, um, but we could all see the the lost step um, and and how much less mobile he is. Um, and it, and it made some sense, especially with Michael Kendricks getting hurt and how much they loved him last year and, and gave him such a big role. And so I started playing around with scenarios quite a bit leading up to the draft with some of the second round linebackers. And so I had looked at guys like Davis Gaither out of Appalachian State and, and Willie Gay. I, I never, never watched Jordan Brooks. I made the same mistake that I think a lot of draft analysts uh, did leading up to the draft and in the moments and hours and days after the draft. And some of them are still making this mistake. I didn't consider him because he was a middle linebacker. I did the same in thing. All, in all the simulators, in all the, I, I like, I still like to buy, in fact, I still like to buy the old school draft magazines when they hit <laughs> the newsstand. I just love reading those things just casually, even though they're done so early in the process that, that they're usually not that accurate. Um, but they all had him listed as a middle linebacker because that's what he played as a senior never knowing that he was an outside backer his first three years and an all-conference one at that. And so completely missed the boat on that. I think the Seahawks take pride in those things, and I think they took advantage of that situation in this case because of the the bizarre draft uh, evaluation period, not being able to visit in person, no pro days. And so there just wasn't as much information out there being passed around, reporters seeing who teams are meeting with and and those kinds of things. But also the fact that he didn't play in the senior bowl because he tweaked an ankle, didn't do full um, testing at the combine. He was the epitome of an under the radar guy. We have since come to find out based on what uh, all the best analysts and, and NFL reporters are saying. Um, In fact, Brady Henderson on ESPN yesterday uh, quoted a bunch of anonymous uh, front office guys is saying that, that he, Jordan Brooks was absolutely taken in the right area, and there were a number of teams interested in doing the exact same thing uh, if the Seahawks hadn't have taken him. And so um, hated it in the moment. The next morning, I was doing my best to try to talk myself into it and and understanding the process, and now I absolutely love it. I think uh, it makes all the sense in the world. I think he's going to play a major role as a rookie. I think he's going to be a big, big part of this defense moving forward long term. Well, let's talk about exactly what he does bring to the table. Um, one of the big things is is team speed increases that team speed. Uh, you know, Pete Carroll uh, back you know February at the combine, everything else talked about the need for the speed to 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 increase, and we all understand that it was very evident that it was lacking the, these last couple of years. Also, thumpers, you know, guys that can hit, guys that make yeah. a statement on defense. Uh, team seems to be lacking on that. Love Bradley McDougald as a strong safety, but he's not that thumper guy. He's more, I don't want to say finesse, but he's hes kind of a jack-of-all-trades safety, uh, and that body type just isn't a thumper kind of a guy. He's a, he's a wrap-up kind of tackler, um, which is great because he's a great solid tackler, um, but he's not an intimidating force that we had in KJ, uh, not KJ Wright, uh, Chancellor. And so I think yeah. the team is wanting to have some of that back. You saw that last year when they drafted Blair. Blair didn't get a chance this last year to see the field. Hopefully a little bit more of an opportunity this year. But a guy like Jordan Brooks brings that mentality, that toughness, that grit, the fire, the sideline to sideline, uh, hit and chase kind of a guy. Um, so I thought that was in- incredibly telling that they went and made that pick. And I, I like it. I'm with you. Um, Keith, what are your thoughts overall? How, where did you start? 
in your evaluation of this? And then where are you, how have you ended up evaluating that uh, linebacker spot on the team? Well, you and I, in, in the lead up to the draft and all the stuff that we did, we basically were like, okay, this team has so many needs between the offensive line and the defensive line. And, and um, that we just said, you know what? They can kick the can down the, down the street a year at linebacker because they've got uh you know, KJ and Bobby and Barton. And, you know, those are your your three starters and Barton can move all over and you can, you know, develop someone who can be that fourth or fifth guy like they did with Calitro a couple of years ago. Um, so they didn't really need it. And so we figured they were going to go elsewhere and then maybe bring in, you know, a late round guy, like a fifth round pick or something um, at linebacker to kind of add to the depth. Um, when the pick was made and it was linebacker, I looked at that and I'm like, Okay, he was a guy I like because he's got just a, he's athletically just twitched up all over the place. Um, but I never really considered him because of uh, it was just not the need for the the first round pick that as from my point of view. But I went back and I started and I looked a little bit and the traits that they like that the reason why they they picked him over other linebackers. Um, are obvious. I mean, they're just straight up obvious on the tape. And then you start to think about, well, let's look at the roster itself. And the reason why, you know, I was like, okay, they'll, they'll, they'll wait a year before they, you know, do this was partly because they drafted Barton last year. Um, so they already, and they already have their three starters, but we have to be honest about the state of KJ, Wright And great guy, great leader, great, good, tremendous and massively underrated player. His um, entire career for his entire career at this point though when we saw it last year that knee has slowed him down and he was never the fastest guy um at linebacker and he was he was part of the reason why team speed was a major problem last year uh because as an outside linebacker he could not keep up with running backs and tight ends and 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 to do part those parts of his job he's still an amazing tackler he still sniffs out sniffs out screens probably better than anyone else in the in the in the league um but physically he just wasn't able to get there on a lot of plays and they needed to get faster and absolutely they did and so now they have a situation where uh with Brooks and Barton and Bobby they've got uh three guys there's a lot more speed there. I mean, Bobby Wagner has lost a step. He's no longer the um, elite speed at linebacker that he once was, but he's still not like slow. Um, and massively, and he's so now, massively still uh, produces at the line of scrimmage. You know, now dropping oh, back into coverage, Bobby's lost a step. We saw that last year, definitely with KJ yep. Wright. I mean, yeah. that was evident. And I mm-hmm. hate to want to move on from a guy that wants to play and has been with the Seahawks his entire career. You almost feel like you need to hand him that starting spot which sucks because I don't want to have that feeling and I think this sort of move that the Seahawks made kind of forces that a little bit kind of makes the team make a decision here they've got four players who could play four players who could start and and only three will and so what's going to happen there is KJ Wright going to be the odd guy out with a cap number that Definitely the Seahawks could take advantage of if they needed to. And if it becomes apparent and it becomes evident that the Seahawks will move on from KJ Wright, can they flip him for a little for a for a draft pick, you know, right before the season starts? Um, mm. I don't you know, something like that could happen. I would hate to see it, but let's be real. Football is what it is. It's 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 a game where 
eventually age catches up with you and um it's a, it's it's also a business and so you've got to keep your team at the at the top and a guy like KJ you're not going to bench and have him sit on the bench all year that would be that would even suck worse than having to cut him i would think yeah i think they're uh, with a guy like KJ i think they're going to air as much as they can on the side of taking care of the player. I mean, they've, they've already done that. It would have made a lot of sense a month ago to cut him uh, because you would have saved a million more. He had a bonus uh, that was due to him, I think, a couple weeks before the draft. And, um, you know, they could cut him tomorrow, and they're not even going to think twice about that million bucks they had to pay him a month ago. And and um, it would be interesting to see. Like, for example, if he were to suffer a, some sort of injury in training camp, the kind of injury you can take a couple weeks off and play through, it wouldn't surprise me if the team would just stick him on IR so he can make his money and 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 be around the team and be an influence um, as opposed to just cutting him and letting him go. I think that he would have to really come to camp and just be done um, for that to happen. Um, but, you know, certainly the writing's on the wall. We know, we know for a fact that best case scenario, 2020 is going to be his last season as a Seahawk. Um, and and I, think, I, I think the other thing about the Brooks pick is um, – I think this also says something because as much as we can talk ourselves into his immediate fit, because there is one, um, I think that the plan is, is he not Barton is going to be the long-term successor uh, to Bobby in the middle. I think he's a better fit there. And I think this does say something about uh, the Seahawks confidence that, that Bobby can play three, four five more years at a high level, because I think, I think that body's going to break down if it's not starting to already. Well, he's definitely, that production takes off a toll, you know, it just does. Yeah. Um, I agree with you there this year. I think it's Bobby Wagner, KJ Wright and uh, Jordan Brooks to start the year with Cody Barton kind of floating around. Um, but we'll see, uh, what happens there. Let's talk safeties. Um, it was an interesting, uh, I, I fell in love with a couple of players in the in the draft, particularly Antoine Winfield. I thought he would have been a great fit at safety, uh, but we've got our safeties. Um, the position group is pretty loaded with Quandre Diggs and um, Bradley McDougald there. You've got Marquise Blair and Hugo Amati behind those guys. Um, how comfortable are you guys going into the season right now as, as the safety group is? Uh, and do they do they look at bringing a guy in at all to compete in in, in that group or to provide special like a special team specialist as part of that group or are we pretty well set? I think they're set. I mean, you have you have your starters and you've got a third player who probably should be a starter. And so um, my ideally for me, you'd go in with Diggs and Blair as your starters and you've got uh, McDougald who can play both positions and float or, you know, and be the, the big nickel type of situation. Um, and then, you know, Amadi's there. He can play free safety, but I believe he's kind of locked in as the as the slot corner. Um, as far as his role, do they bring in a guy to be a special teams person? And yes, he takes up a spot on the roster as a safety, but he's not really a safety. A guy like maybe uh, Luani was a couple of years ago. Um, sure. I mean, they, the CX do that every year. They bring in a, a defensive back to play special teams that isn't really a defensive back. And I'm okay with that because you've got your your two starters and your backup that can play both. Um, you're, you're kind of loaded at the position and, you know, you roll with, this is a, this is a, I mean, getting, uh, digs last year changed everything. 
last year it was, was a major weakness yeah. because you were running Tedrick Thompson out there who's like just not worthwhile. And Jamar um, Taylor. And well, uh, at, 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 well, at, corner, at corner. Yeah, so we had yeah. two guys yeah. back there that had no business, you know, playing. Yeah, and so you know to to get digs, which um, turned one of the weakest positions on the defense into a strength, um, and then you also added Blair, and we saw he didn't get a lot of playing time, but when he did, he looked good. Um, he definitely showed uh, why he was you know such a high draft pick, and um, to have those two guys as the possibility as your two starting safeties, not just in twenty twenty, but also twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. Like you're in, you're in good shape at that position. You're in really good shape at that position. Yeah, I was, I was happy to see the restraint on the part of Schneider and Carroll when it came to safeties in the draft. I just expected them to take one. I didn't study them because I didn't think it was a need, but I just they love taking safeties, and and I think I, I was kind of expecting a late round conversion prod project or a or a hybrid guy. Um, I'm glad they didn't, you know, I like what they have. And, um, and I think there's enough there. And, um, as much as I wouldn't be disappointed or surprised to see them sign another guy, um, maybe a guy that, that can help out in the slot. I hope this is a signal that they do, they do have confidence in Blair. They do have confidence in Amadi and that group moving forward. Um, that uh, these are the right guys. I think just the fact that they were willing to move on from Tedrick Thompson and admit their mistake, I think oh, was, that was one of the biggest safety coming. moves of the offseason. Oh, sure. I, I know. That was crazy. Um, they did pick up a guy in uh, the undrafted free agent guy. Uh, one of the guys that I think is high up on my list of somebody watching camp would be Chris Miller out of Baylor. Second team, mm-hmm. big 12, hard hitter, aggressive, ultra competitive guy, uh, kind of a thumper. Um, so that's somebody to watch in that in that role. How about um, corners? Uh, Seattle went out and, and uh, traded away a fifth round pick for Quentin Dunbar this off season um, to pair with it seemingly uh, Shaq Griffin over on the other side and then Trey flowers. Um, and then you mentioned Amadi being kind of in that slot role right now. It did surprise me a little bit that the Seahawks didn't address that specifically in the draft, that uh, kind of uh, third corner, big slot or, or, uh, nickel guy. Um, what do you think of the overall position, Dan? And do you think there's a, a move out there, especially to compete with Amadi? I hope so, because I feel like there's still a body short. I was, I was really surprised. Um, disappointed even they didn't take a corner in the draft. I almost always had him either a, either a slot specialist type like a meek Robinson, uh, Robertson or, or a guy that I thought had future starting potential on the outside, like a Bryce Hall. I love that mm-hmm. pick for the jets. Um, uh, or even in undrafted free agency, um, you know, they, they took a couple unheralded under the radar guys. I thought there were some, some bigger names out there, but, um, Darkies Denard is a guy that, that I've, I've heard mentioned recently that I think would make a lot of sense and be a real good value to come in and compete with um, Amadi, not only as the, as the nickel corner, but a guy that can play outside in a pinch. I do think they're in better shape clearly than a year ago because I think Dunbar, oh, it's, uh, it's, yeah. I can't wait to see what that group looks like. I just can't wait to see. I think the upgrades they made in that secondary, you can't even um, – you can't even really put it in perspective well, until we see well, it. A couple and, of, and not only that, but now now your third corner is Trey Flowers instead of 
Akeem King or Nico Thorpe. I think they've upgraded there. I just feel like they need one more guy. Well, I, I was going to ask you about the Trey Flowers thing, and then Carol um, kind of commented, especially on the nickel thing. He says, there are some things we're working on. I don't want to tell yeah. you uh, all of it right now. I'd like to keep it under wraps, but there's some different things that we're going to try. Now, that doesn't necessarily point to we're going to bring somebody outside to compete it sounds right. like they're going Could to be use a scheme thing a scheme thing and what is, where does yeah. that leave trey flowers and amadi as far as putting the best players on the field all at the same time well to me it it uh what i what it says is that those are the two guys that are that are going to be featured because they're both former safeties who are playing corner um you know flowers was way better as a rookie than as a second year player. And so we have to kind of look at what was going on last year that caused him to drop off. But even with all of his struggles last year, he was an incredibly uh, good tackler and, you know, on the outside and his ability to come up and make plays against the run and that kind of stuff was valuable. And, you know, to have that in as your nickel and be able to come up and play kind of linebacker-ish or strong safety-ish um, would be a nice a value to have. And you also have Amadi, who is a college safety, and we know he can cover in the nickel, but he can also play center field and 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 do some of those things. He can, he tackles really well for a cornerback. Um, and so I could see those two guys factoring in and doing more of a three-safety kind of look with one of them being also cornerish. Uh, and then you've have Blair in you, there too. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you've got that hybrid um, corner safety in both of those guys. And I see that factoring in very strongly into their plans of what they're going to do with the nickel. Um, and I also will say that I am higher on flowers than I think anybody else, just because um I, I went, you know, go back and study his tape as a rookie and yeah, he didn't get interceptions, but he picked up that position change and the technique that was asked of him and everything that he needed to do. He picked it up really quick. He played really well. Um, and you also look at what happened with uh, Quill Griffin. Well, Quill, Quill Griffin was amazing as a rookie. He took a major step back as a second-year player and then was played at a Pro Bowl level his third year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see Flowers having that same trajectory where he played well as a rookie. He took a step back his second year and then takes a big step forward in year three. So um, I'm glad they went and got Dunbar and aren't banking on that 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 improvement because they they, they needed to have a guy that they could count on no matter what. Um, but I, I think that with the three of them, you've got three good corners. And with Amadi's ability to play the slot, you've got um, – you're kind of set. I also think they're going to need another corner back because yeah. what happens if one of those guys gets hurt? I mean, you have no depth. It's so thin behind Dan, I have a question for you related to this. What do you believe may have been the impact of our anemic pass rush – as well as our inconsistent safety play, at least early in the season, how might that have an effect on the play of Flowers? And uh, does that impact things going forward if those things improve? Absolutely. I, you know, the strength of his game is not being that really uh, sticky um, man covered a guy that, that can shadow someone all over the field. He's, I, I think he's better in zone. You know, he's got the safety background. Um, and so the, the more, the more pressure you put on him to cover a guy like, oh, I don't know, Devonte Adams one-on-one 
all across the field running crossing routes and seams um, is that's just that doesn't play into his strengths. And so, you know, it, it, it all works together. The, the fact that we've upgraded, I believe, our pass rush, and, and I think there's still more moves to come, is going to help him tremendously. I, I hope that that comment that you detailed that uh, Carol made recently, I hope what that means is, look, we have a bunch of guys now that have varied skill sets, and we can match up with just about anything any team throws at us, and that, and that they can do it based on game plan. Because I think what frustrated all of us last year, especially with this whole base thing, was they just ran it every single week, week in and week out, depending no matter who they were facing. You know, you have so much flexibility now with, you know, Dunbar has played some in the middle, although he doesn't grade out as highly at the nickel position. But look at how much success they had late in the year, two years ago, using Akeem King in that big nickel uh, situation oh, covering right. tight ends, right? In that Kansas City game really stands out the way he shut exactly. Kelsey down. Maybe Flowers can play that role with his safety background. If they're going up against a team like, for instance, let's say they're playing Tampa Bay, just to pick a team off the top of my head that has two really dangerous tight ends. You know, instead of playing, you're not going to play a Mahdi as your nickel guy trying to cover one of those guys. And so maybe Flowers can can move inside in that situation. Um, I hope that that's what it means. Um, but that even plays more into what Keith was just saying, that if that's the case, then your fourth guy is Nico Thorpe. Got to have another corner somehow, some way. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I, that's great analysis right there, This especially with the, the big nickel um, covering those tight ends. Uh, that is actually very intriguing, and I haven't thought about King and the way that he covered Kansas City. We've talked about it before on the show, Keith. Uh, specifically that game, and then it, it's just been non-existent after that. But that's kind of an intriguing look that the Seahawks could roll out on defense. Um, and it certainly provides, I believe, higher upside than keeping three linebackers on the field all the time in a base 4-3 look um, that they tried to roll out last year, I thought, I mean, unsuccessfully. Who would, you, who, would you rather, who would you rather try have trying to cover... George Kittle in the slot, KJ Wright, or Trey Flowers. Yeah, or Kendricks. Yeah, exactly. Right. right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, roundup question. Uh, have the Seahawks improved uh, overall? In, and, and specifically, uh, if you want to list a couple of examples, uh, since uh, 2019 as a team, and do we have a better shot at this year advancing further in the playoffs, getting to that conference championship game and going to the Super Bowl? Uh, which is really what this is all about. Um, have right. we done enough or are we treading water or do you think that we've become worse in relationship to what both San Francisco and dare I say the Arizona Cardinals have done to improve in the division? Uh, Dan, go ahead. Um, I think they've improved and I, I think the way to look at it, and we've done it here today is you break it down position group by position group. The fact that they were able uh, to win the number of games they won last year, uh, win a playoff game, get to Green Bay, and have a chance to win that game with absolutely no pass rush and major issues up front and major issues on the back end is remarkable. Um, I think they've upgraded the defense to the point that if if they make the right couple of additions uh, with with some veteran role players, as we've talked about, 
I think it's a chance to be a top 10 defense and dramatically better than a year ago and, and a more recognizable team as far as what we've come to expect from Pete Carroll um, and his staff. Um, I think right now it's a team that once again, I think I think the hierarchy has changed slightly. Um, I like what Arizona has done. I'm still, I have major questions about Cliff Kingsbury and his ability to lead and be a head coach in the NFL. And also the fact that they're, they're building that team on finesse in a division that's led by two teams that are punishing physical teams in the, the 49ers and the Seahawks. Yeah, that's an excellent see point. How that plays out long term. But I still think I think the Seahawks are in position to challenge the 49ers for the division. And I think if they still go on to make a couple of key additions, they could be in that Super Bowl conversation. I love what they've done. And I'll say this about the 49ers. They're getting a lot of love for what they did in the draft. I'm not so sure that Javon Kinlaw in place of DeForest Buckner is a huge difference. And I'm not so sure that Brandon Ayuk in place of Emmanuel Sanders is a huge difference. They've, they've gone younger obviously, and they've, they've filled those voids, but I don't know that they're a better football team today than they were last year. So I, I think it's those two battling it out again. And I like where the Seahawks are at right now. And they, and they swapped left tackles essentially too. So. Yeah, basically. I mean, a lot was made of that, and it was a great move for them. It didn't cost him much, but is Trent Williams that much better than Joe Staley? I mean, you're talking about a borderline Hall of Famer. Yeah, I mean, Staley is, even at the end of his career, the last couple of years, he's been good. Yeah, It's not like he's been, oh, he's there, but he's old. He's like a shadow of himself. He's still been good. And you know, I don't think they got better. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think the move from Buckner to Kinlaw made him better. I think uh, I like Kinlaw, but Buckner was a pro bowler. Um, and I don't think the move from Sanders to Ayuk uh, made them better. I, I think overall yeah. they filled the voids, but they filled the voids with players that were slightly lesser than the ones that they have. And one of the things that made the 49ers so dangerous was how uh, – just there wasn't it wasn't like oh here's a few strong players and then they filled in around them it they were so solid at every position it was such a well-built roster and now when you start to have a like a drop off here and a little bit of a drop off there can the other players um you know rise up to the occasion and and fill in for that drop off i'm not sure because it's the because the strength was the was the um, overall collection of talent. And now you're going to be asking for a few guys to play and be a superstar. And I don't know if that is the right way for that team to be successful. And so um, I don't know. I, 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 I look at it and I go, I think this team is, that team is, it has taken a step back, not a huge step, but a step. Um, and I think that the Seahawks, especially on defense, we were close um, have last taken a year. Big step forward. We were close. I mean, we yeah. played that yeah. team toe to toe, two different yeah. games, down to the inch, yep. down to the inch. Yep, and I think that the and that was what Seattle's defense was bad last year. Yeah. I mean, we yeah. we don't we don't need to sugarcoat it. They were bad, mm-hmm. and they were especially bad. Um, you know, when Tedrick Thompson was out there um, or Hill, and it wasn't so Tedrick uh, cost big. us a couple of games last year. Absolutely. Um, and so you look at at uh, this was a team that was bad on defense. I don't think they're going to be bad this year. I I don't have the upside that um, that Dan does in thinking that this is going to be a top ten defense because I still think the pass rush is lacking. Um, but it's unproven. You can 
Well, I, true, but I, I, I just don't think they have the bodies. I think they, they do needed, they, they needed to have brought in, um, Clowney or Yannick or something that you can, that player is going to demand a double team on every play, which makes everyone else on the line better. And they right. don't really have that guy right now. I think they're um, so close, I Keith. They I think that. they, they're, they're listening right now. And John, John Schneider's <laughs> on line one. And, uh, and sure. I do believe that they understand as you've painted, both of you have painted this idea that we're very close. We've improved. We're an, over an 11 win team and we're one player away. Like we're literally one player or maybe two, maybe an interior defensive tackle guy. But if you bring a county back plus everything else, we could now, now you, you made me raise my eyebrows down about the top 10 defense comment. But we're really pretty close. I mean, we were yeah. say twenty three, twenty four last year. Pro Football Focus, I think, has the closest to you know closer to twenty seven or whatever. Nonetheless, we're in the twenties. To to go from that all the way to top ten, that's a pretty decisive jump. So I'm going to say I'd be happy with fifteen. If you could get to the fifteenth best defense, um, which is average. Plus the increases that we've made on the offensive side of the ball already a top yeah. 10 offense. Say we go into the say with top five ish range on the offense plus a top 15 defense. You can get to the Super Bowl with that. And I think that's how close we are. So I'm definitely, you know, bullish on that for sure. Yeah. And, it, well, and the, go ahead. I was going to say um, the, the AFC um, right now appears to be a one team conference with mm-hmm. the chiefs because with the patriots yeah. no longer being a um a, a major challenge because they just don't have a quarterback um you're you're baltimore's gonna be there that's gonna, yeah okay yeah i'll give you that yeah. um i didn't i didn't miss them and and tennessee is gonna have something to say about that too because they're they're good everywhere except for um their average at quarterback but um you know it's, but it's still it, it whoever comes out of the nfc into the Super Bowl is going to be much more battle tested and mm-hmm. should automatically True. just be kind of the favorite. It's a much tougher road through the NFC. And if you can challenge for a Super Bowl in this conference, you got to be a really good team. And I do think the Seahawks are in that position to challenge uh, for it. There's other good teams in the NFC as well. And so the challenge will be difficult, but they're right there. They are right there. Yeah. And I think it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see what they do as far as their approach on offense. I think there's evidence based on the personnel moves they made this off season, especially in the offensive line. There's evidence that they're not necessarily going to throw the football more. um, But I think that that quick passing game may be uh, a, a little bit bigger emphasis this year. And that maybe with all these additions they've made to the defense, getting so much faster and more dynamic, at least, uh, with the guys that they have up front, that maybe Pete Carroll will be a little bit more inclined this year to play the way they played in 13 and 14, which is try to get an early lead, get on top so I can turn my defense loose, as opposed to, hey, let's just try to wrestle these guys and grapple them and keep the game close and pull it out at the end. Yeah, If we can get into that kind of a of a transition and, and just sort of a um, evolution of this offense, now I think we're talking. Well, the defense is specifically designed to create more opportunities for the offense, if you really look at it. Those, the defensive ends that we got, those guys are excellent at stripping the ball. 
creating turnovers. Uh, I think uh, both those guys, Alton Robinson and um, Taylor, uh, were were very adept at uh, forcing uh, fumbles and strip strip sacks, all that kind of stuff. If you take a look at Dunbar, he was a turnover machine at corner, right? Uh, you take a look at the the uh, Brooks uh, created mm-hmm. some forced fumbles. The way that he hits, uh, you take a look at Blair. You take a look at uh, Quandre Diggs. Those guys yeah. love to get the football. Even, and I think that's even Amadi at Oregon was a huge playmaker yeah, and a yeah, real yeah. impact guy. So to me, that's what Pete's going for here. More physical yeah. uh, defense with speed that creates turnovers, creating more opportunities for your offense. And and when you have that kind of, I don't want to call it necessarily a ball control offense, but the, the offense is designed to take time off the clock, march up and down the field, uh, with a quick passing game, you add to that along with the running game. Oof. I mean, if it all works, in theory, <laughs> right? We're we're a we're <laughs> a tough team. We're a tough out, as as they like to say. So, yeah, okay. much tougher than a year ago. Okay, let's wrap it up. Um, Dan, any final thoughts? Do you want to put it all together and uh, and we'll head out of here? Yeah, I just keep going back to the Jordan Brooks selection and and. W- what you were just describing as far as just kind of an overview of where they're at. I think one of the things that has me the most excited about this, this defense is the Brooks edition, because if you, if you kind of do an alternate reality thing and go back and say, okay, let's say they just take that edge guy in the first round. Um, and then, you know, queen Brooks and all those guys, Harrison go off the board. They probably don't even think about linebacker early. So then, then they move to the offense after that. It just, We've upgraded that we're all feeling good about where they are up front, but Brooks gives you that. We weren't expecting this. This is, this is kind of like opening a gift at Christmas time and getting something that wasn't on your list, but your parents know you so well, they know exactly what you need and exactly what you wanted without you even asking for it. It's, it's kind of like just this bonus, you know, that, that we weren't even thinking in terms of adding a dynamic player to the second level of that defense. And now we have it. And they still were able to address edge in a way um, that we're all happy about. Uh, I can't wait to see him take the field. I just think that um, they're going to be a lot more dynamic and a lot more fun to watch. I was going to say, to me, what they did was they took Jordan Brooks and got that dynamic defensive playmaker at linebacker instead of taking an offensive tackle because the draft fell in a way that I was really happy with. Um after you know that first pick, uh, but I personally wanted them to go offensive tackle there because we knew from all the mocks mm-hmm. and all the stuff that we'd done that if you if they tried to press for that, that defensive lineman in the first round, things just never fell in a in a way that worked out well for them. But so that's why I, I always went back to let's let's go get that offensive tackle there because then everything falls and you end up getting players with value and and all of that and it all worked out. Um, in every simulation I ran, um, and getting Brooks in that spot still allowed them to get uh, Taylor in, in round two and everything else to fall um, in a way that made a lot of sense and, and, and really worked out for them. Um, so it's kind of the same thing, right? So it's uh, they got the they they decided to go get the dynamic playmaker at linebacker rather than the offensive tackle, but yeah. they, now they need an offensive tackle. So, but you can like I said, they. They, with all the one-year contracts and stuff they did on the offensive line, they they chose to kick that can down the street a little bit, and um, you know they'll have to address it next offseason. But they had to fix the defense now, 
And I, I very much appreciate that they went out of their way to fix the defense in a very real, substantial way. Thank yeah. you. You just touched. You just touched on exactly why I'm already watching the offensive tackles uh, for 2021 <laughs> in, in the draft. Already watching those guys. Uh, that's a, that's yep. awesome. Thank you, gentlemen, so much, Dan. Thank you for coming on the show um, and and returning the favor. Um, it was enjoyable to be on your show. But man, I really enjoyed the conversation that we were able to have and go into the depth that we that we were able to do uh, with the three of us on the show. Um, so thank you so much for taking some time uh, for the appearance and um, anything that we can do to help you out at the Dan Cave podcast anytime. Just let us know. Absolutely. It was a long time coming. Love you guys. And uh, it was a, it was an honor being on the playbook. Sweet. Yeah. It's great. It's great to see you and talk to you again. It's been, been quite a while. Um, I think the last time I saw you in person was at the uh, Richard Sherman celebrity softball game at Safeco when we were there covering, um, covering the team in the, up in the press box. Yeah. Yeah. It was either that or, or I know we saw each other at a training camp practice once, but I can't remember now which, which one came first, but yeah, it's been, uh, it's been a while. It has been a while. Yeah. So it's great, great to catch up. So Dan, where can we find you on Twitter? Uh, At Seahawks forever spelled out just like it sounds uh, is my Twitter handle. You can certainly follow me there. Uh, And then the Dan cave, uh, the Dan cave podcast is available on all podcast platforms. And you can find Keith at Myers NFL. I'm at NW Seahawk. The show is at Seahawks Playbook or Hawks Playbook on Twitter, SeahawksPlaybook.com, uh, where all the shows are archived. And you can subscribe to any podcast platform for the show. And make sure you get it in your feed and uh, don't miss a single week. So until next time, guys, go Hawks. Go, go Hawks. Fox Playbook Podcast listeners, thanks for joining us for another edition of the show. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Podcasts or listen at our website, hawksplaybook.com. Follow us on Twitter. Bill is at NWC Hawk. Keith is at Myers NFL. And the show is at Hawks Playbook. See you next week and go Hawks.